So welcome back. Um, I'm so excited for this uh, incredible opportunity that we have this morning. Offer a, a framework for our conversation this morning. So six years ago, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, I gave a sermon called Our Country Was Built on a Stolen Beam about reparations. And it was essentially a Jewish case for reparations for black Americans. And at that time, I have to say, it seemed like an impossible dream, but part of the work that preachers do is naming the impossible dreams out loud and then hoping that we can be part of a cultural shift that ends up moving us little by little by little toward the realization of the impossible. As Brooke Wirtschafter, our Director of Community Organizing, and I were reflecting this year, six years later after this, um, it became very clear that while this dream is not yet a reality in our country, there have been crucial steps that have been taken toward making this impossible dream not so impossible here in California. The California Reparations Task Force, as many of you know, has recommended that the state of California apologize for racism and slavery and consider what they're calling down payments of varying amounts to eligible African-American residents. And many of you took note that um, in a truly landmark move, a black family in Manhattan Beach, not so far from here, was restored property that had been taken by the local government 100 years ago. This is called Bruce's Beach. Are you all familiar with the story of Bruce's Beach? This was a beautiful beachfront property and resort, and the government had seized it from a black family along with land seizures all around the country of black-owned land, and the government returned the land to the descendants of the Bruce family, who then resold it to Los Angeles County for $20 million. This is truly a significant step. Because what's, you can applaud. <laughs> what's clear is that what's not happening nationally yet is now happening in California. And we know how California tends to lead the nation in such critical and important ways. So reparations, of course, is not only about cash payments, it's about a culture shift. And that's why we're gonna be talking about it today. This is a culture shift toward honesty, toward accountability, and toward repair which are, of course, the central themes of the High Holy Days, which is why, despite the fact that a few people inside ICAR and more people outside ICAR were very upset when I spoke about reparations several years ago on High Holy Days, I knew that it was not only the right thing, but it was actually an imperative for us to be having these conversations in our sacred spaces, in our most sacred moments. At the heart of the shift that needs to happen in our country for real healing to happen is a kind of spiritual transformation, and that's what we're going to be focusing on today. What is the chashbon hanefesh? What is the deep inner work of self-evaluation that will allow for real growth and possibility? What is the spiritual work of building the beloved community? I'm joined today by two of my very dear friends, and I'm sorry to say that one of our panelists unfortunately was injured and isn't able to join us today, but I'll share with you um, the, te the sacred text from the Quran, from her um, Muslim tradition that she shared with us. Um, but these, including Adina, who's not here, are partners 
of hours in the work of building a just and loving society. These are people with whom we have stood shoulder to shoulder in the work of racial justice, economic justice, climate justice, gender justice. These are true friends. And these are people who are fueled by faith and who lead every day with love. And so together, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about some of the root causes, about the long-term impact of wrongs that were committed long ago on our society and on us as individuals, about the ongoing toll of structural racism and what we, all of us, can actually do about it. So I want to take a moment to introduce my friends, who are also friends of many in this room and certainly not new faces here. First, um, we have to my right, uh, Reverend Eddie Anderson, who's also lovingly known as Pastor Eddie by all who know him. Um, he is the Strategic Partnerships Manager for LA Voice. Um, this is the wonderful organization of churches and synagogues and mosques and schools and community organizations that we, ICAR, um, are uh, grateful to be a part of. Pastor Eddie is an, uh, a very strong advocate for BLM, for Black Lives Matter. He's the co-founder of Clergy for Black Lives, um, a convener and former co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign of California, led by our friend uh, Bishop Barber. Um, and he is a Leonard Bierman Fellow, which just gives me great joy that Leonard Bierman's name appears in your bio. Um, Reverend Anderson has served as a movement and thought leader for many of the local and statewide reforms around transformative justice. Uh, he has been jailed many times, a record to be proud of, and I suspect there will be more jailings ahead. Um, and, um, and Pastor Eddie has also just been a dear friend, um, and it's really an honor to have you um, as an extended part of our community for all of these years um, and as a leader in the work, so I thank you. And right beside Pastor Eddie... is Reverend Zachary Hoover, who is the executive director of LA Voice, which I just mentioned, which is a multiracial, multi-faith community organization that awakens people to our own power and trains us to speak and to act and to work together to transform Los Angeles into a city and California into a state that truly reflects the dignity and the yearnings of all of the people in this place um, Reverend Zach Hoover holds a Master of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School. He is an ordained American Baptist. Uh, he was ordained in the American Baptist Church, and he's in his 18th year of organizing with Pico California and Faith in Action. I know we seem so old, right? <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly we got old. I don't know how that happened. And, um, and, uh, and also, over these years, has become truly a dear, dear friend, and I'm so grateful for both of you. Um, I also am going to be. You, we can applaud for. And, um, and we, uh, we're grateful for the, for the spirit of our dear friend, Adina Lekovic, who is the inaugural community scholar in Community Bridges Residency, um, working in partnership between UCLA's Islamic Studies Program and the Fowler Museum, um, doing incredible work on studying and sharing the history of Muslims in Los Angeles, especially over the last 20 years, when Muslims have been painted by many in the national political scene as kind of interlopers and foreigners who come here um, to, uh, to spread their, uh, their views. But in fact, Muslims have been part of this country from its founding. And thanks to the work of Adina and other scholars, really 
bringing to light um, the reality of both the history and the, and the contemporary um, existence of Muslims in our, in our community. And I'm sorry, we, we, we wish for her Rifuash um, I think she's watching with us from afar right now. So Adina, um, we love you and we're grateful for your work and um, hope that I can speak uh, well to what you shared with us in advance as we prepared for this panel. Okay. A word of background before I turn it uh, over to, uh, to my friends and we'll be in dialogue together. In the sermon that I mentioned earlier, um, some of you were here six years ago on that Rosh Hashanah, um, others of you were not. So I want to um, offer to you the text which I put on the sheet um, as our initial text today because this is a kind of shared language that we'll be able to use throughout the course of our discourse today. And the idea, without going into great depth, is that there is a machloket, there's a dispute between uh, the rabbis about what happens when a person steals a beam from his neighbor's backyard because he likes the way that beam looks and wants to use it as the foundation of the home that he is building. He steals the beam, and on that beam, he builds a beautiful palace or home. What must he do in order to make things right? Beit Shammai, who always in our tradition offer the more radical view, Beit Shammai says you need to tear the house down, retrieve the beam, and give it back to its rightful owner. That's some kind of justice. He's so, he's so outraged by the injustice of the stolen beam that he's willing to take the house down. And I want to tell you, I sympathize with Beit Shammai because he has a clear picture of just how wrong it was that this thing was taken in the first place. But Beit Hillel is a little bit more pragmatic, and he wants to find a way that we can both honor the profound injustice that took place and also allow the house to stand because the house is beautiful and people live in it. And so what Beit Hillel says is, no, you don't tear down the house. You go find that neighbor and you pay him what he is due for the beam that was stolen. And this, I feel like the rabbis wrote this 2,000 years ago for us today. I feel like they wrote it for an America that is caught in the crosshairs of a battle with its own history. And the question we're facing is, will we be willing to be honest about that history and do what needs to be done or not? And so that we take this metaphor of the stolen beam and use it as a foundation for us to have a true conversation about what might, in fact, be possible. Now, the, the commentary, the gloss on this piece of Talmud tells us that the reason that Beit Hillel is able to take such a reasonable approach is for one thing. It says in, in, the, in the language of the, of the Talmud, if I actually have a copy of it right here, I can show you, or you can just trust me. The language uh, in the last line of the first text is Mishum Takanata Shavim. Mishum Takanata Shavim. And our commentators tell us if you look at the Steinsaltz, it says, We decreed this in order to lighten the burden of the sinner so that he will return in Shuva. If there's no way out other than dismantling the entire beautiful house, nobody will ever admit that they stole the beam. The rabbis understood that everybody makes mistakes. And there have to be ways out. There have to be ways for us as a society to build anew without destroying everything that exists, even if at the heart of the thing that was built, there is a profound injustice. That's the bias of the tradition. 
And I have for you here, we're not going to go through it, the way that that tshuva actually takes place, the many steps from public confession to remorse, regret, to reparation, even generations later, even if the people we stole from are no longer alive. The text that we want to focus our conversation on today is a step after that. I'm going to invite you to turn to Rav Cook, which is on page three, I believe. And I'll share this text with you as a jumping off point for the three of us. Rav Cook talks about just how hard this work is. Pain is felt at the idea of tshuva as it begins to shine. This is a result of our now disconnecting from ourselves the evil parts of our spirit that cannot be rectified as long as they are bound in one aggregate to our spiritual organism, where they damage and harm the entirety of our spirit. When we attach ourselves to those wrong actions, they damage us, they damage our spirit. By means of tshuva, these parts of us are progressively disconnected and uprooted from our fundamental spiritual essence, from our core. And every such disconnection brings pain, like the pain of amputating diseased limbs out of medical necessity. This is not easy work. These are the most inward sufferings. By means of and through these, a person emerges into freedom out of the dark enslavement of our transgressions and our basest inclinations with their bitter consequences. But a person, he writes, who internalizes the good treasure, who understands that growth can emerge from these sufferings, he welcomes them with complete love, and his mind is at ease, even though he's suffering. And when this happens, his spirit is elevated, his knowledge is deepened, his inner character begins to heal, and the impressions left by his transgressions are erased. They are turned upside down into good signs, evidence of the greatness of one's soul. With that, I invited these two preachers here on Sunday morning when I know you have other things to do to talk to us about the resonance of this text given your experience and your encounter with these ideas of repair and reparation. Who wants to go first? Should I go first? <laughs> yeah, all right, all right, I'll go first. Uh, Lashana to everyone, and thank you, Sharon, for having the courage uh, to have this conversation. So when I look at the text and, hello my dear brother, um, when I look at the text, uh, two, I was thinking about it this morning, two things really resonate for me around uh, reparations. The first is that uh, the Tigers and Euphrates, if you will, of reparations is restitution and repair. And that when we look at sacred texts, the love ethic, and for me as a black American um, and a Christian, the love ethic for us uh, comes out of someone who is oppressed in their own society. Um, that caused us to yearn for wholeness. And so the question for America is really, do we continue to live in the deception that we are whole, or do we actually look at the harm that was done to my ancestors uh, and say that there is some spiritual injury. The restitution is a payment, but repair is the ongoing work. Mm. Uh, and then for me, it also resonates. Um, I'm originally from Georgia, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. My 
ancestors are from South Georgia, um, where we call the Low Country. If you, another word, that's Savannah. But we call it the Low Country, um, and we and we use that name in, intentionally. It's Regici folks, and I bring that up because when we talk about reparations, everyone's probably heard of forty acres and a mule, uh, and that comes from Special Order Number Fifteen. Special Number Order Fifteen is after Sherman. Uh, meet, uh, burns down Savannah on January the 12th, uh, 1865, he calls together 20 pastors, pastors, mm -hmm. and asks them, uh, what do you want now that you are free? This is good for you to understand because when the quote-unquote freedom happens for my ancestors, we had no land, we had nowhere to go. And Special Order 15 asks for two things. It asks for education, and it acts for land. And in this country, I think that's what we're still pursuing, all of us in the wholeness, is looking for how do we educate ourselves about what was the harm that was done to you? How do we look at it in the face? And then what does wholeness actually look like? Um, and I'll turn it over to Zach, but I'll just say that part of that wholeness is to realize that while slavery as an institution technically ended for some on January the 1st, we know because of Juneteenth that it actually didn't end, but the legacies of slavery, the way in which we gerrymandered districts, the way in which we redlined our communities, the fact that in LA County today, black folks still live 12 years less than anyone else in the county because we don't have the right health outcomes, that equity has never really been realized in this city, in this country, or in this nation. And so we are all on this journey of repair. Amen. Um, the, the thing that both listening to you and our previous conversation together and in this text that has resonated with me most since we prepared together um, is this, this part about just the, the pain, but yet the turning that can happen if you embrace it with love. Mm -hmm. And I was reading something this morning about, for those of us who are white and have been racialized as white in this country, and frankly in this world, uh, that part of this work is work of mourning. Because you've got to let go of the false notion that you did it on your own, that you know, you're not responsible, that uh, the country is what you were taught to believe it was when you were younger, that you don't benefit from the arrangements around race that have persisted for uh, centuries. And so some of this is just the, the I think, the painful work of mourning. And, uh, but, but what I love about the hopefulness of the end of this passage is, and I think what a lot of to your, to your point, Rabbi Browse, about um, people need sort of some hope that, okay, you're not going to totally destroy my house and leave me with nothing, um, but there's something still painful that I need to do requiring this recognition, admission, um, which, you know, if you did this 20 years ago in your own life, it might be hard to remember how hard it was in the beginning. But if I think back to when I first started getting serious about my own race work, I mean, it's so uncomfortable. 
you, it's like left and right, you're seeing examples all the time of how you are continuing to benefit as a white person from these structures that have been in place for so long. Mm. You benefit psychologically, you benefit financially, you benefit in ways you're not even aware of. And I think the other part that's mourning is the harm that it has done to me and to those of us who are white. And the failure to admit and to acknowledge it's, uh, it's not freedom. <laughs> so so uh, I was talking with my, with my friend Tom Dolan, who's, uh, who's an expert in the 12-step 12 12-step program. And you know we were talking about how part of finding freedom in your life in that program is admitting the wrongs that you have committed and seeking to make amends. And the sense is you cannot be free from the addiction if you're not willing to make that move, which comes after admitting that there's something wrong going on. So I think like those two things are sitting in my spirit as we have this conversation today. And, and in that, the hopefulness that if you say, you know what, okay, hey, we all know saying sorry is hard. Nobody thinks it's easy. I just watched my eight-year-old struggle with it for like an hour, you know, last week about something. And um, we all know it's difficult, but if we make it a practice, we begin to understand that there's life on the other side of it and that that life is actually more free and more wonderful. That's beautiful. Um, I actually connects really well to the, um, the, to the text from Dr. Howard Thurman that you shared, um, Pastor Eddie. So maybe you can, can you speak to that? It's on, it's sure. on our sheets here. So uh, Howard Thurman text is about deception and like what is the real cost of deception in our lives. And Howard Thurman, just to give you a context, he's uh, an African-American man. He goes to Morehouse College, and he writes this in the book that Dr. King carries with him throughout the entire civil rights movement. Um, and the real, the real toll is deception is that we actually become uh, the deception itself. And that's, and that's hard to, to realize that um, Yes, many of us were born into this world, into this system, but the system was built upon a deception that um, oppression made a privileged and underprivileged class in our society. And I think uh, for us, it's how do we, how do we disrupt the biggest lie which has shaped how we interact with one another, and how we seek repair with one another as well. Um, and, I, and I think and the hope, I'll say the hope, when I look at your text, uh, the hope is, and for black Americans, right? The, the call of every person who's moving with soul force, as Reverend Lawson, bringing him in the room, <laughs> as, as Reverend Lawson would say, is to how do we further democratize America? Mm. And as Dr. King would say, how do we make America become true to what it says on paper? Mm -hmm. And that's been the work, right? So yes, slavery may have ended in 1865, but black folks weren't allowed to vote in this country until 1864, I mean 1964. My parents weren't allowed to vote, right? And so there is, a large chasm of wrong, but there is so much opportunity for healing. And I think that's what the invitation is. Yes. I, it's, uh, this conversation reminds me of a moment that we had when uh, our community went down to experience the Equal Justice Initiative in mm -hmm. Montgomery. And we, were, we spoke with Brian Stevenson there, and we went to the Legacy um, Memorial and Museum Memorial. 
uh, the Lynching Memorial and the Legacy Museum. And what he does so brilliantly there is he actually connects the dots in a very tangible and sort of physical way. It's undeniable from enslavement to, um, to Jim Crow and the legacy of racial terror to mass incarceration. And I remember speaking with one of the people um, in our group afterwards who said, my whole life, I thought that the war on drugs was a war on drugs. Mm. I didn't realize that it was a war on black people. Mm-hmm. And we, and like the way that, I mean, this goes to what both of you were saying, but that we're, we're being fed a deception. And until we break down that deception, we don't know. And then the realization of that is extremely painful. That's the anguish that he's talking about. And that's like the loss of, a, you know, you feel like you're, you're losing some part of yourself because I was told a story and that story isn't true. And when I see this eruption in parts of America right now of this kind of reactionary force, I feel like it's coming from a, from a, a, a kind of scarred spirit that doesn't know that actually the pain of, of honesty is part of spiritual growth. Yes. That it's okay that it feels bad. Yeah. Lean into the pain of it because there's a different... There's a different world on the other side of it. And the reparations in California, I was noticing that it seems like it's rooted in three different areas. It's not, pay, it's not payments for enslavement. It's payments for, correct me if I'm wrong here, healthcare um, differentials in healthcare outcomes, like you were saying, housing and redlining, um, and mass incarceration and policing, over-policing during the war on drugs, drugs et cetera, which are things that affect, have affected black people long after slavery ended. And so, can, I mean, can you started to talk about this, uh, Pastor Eddie, but can you talk just a little bit more about, to help everyone in this room understand what actually we mean when we talk about the legacy of slavery? Um, can you unlo- unpack that for us a little? Sure. Um, the legacy of slavery. So, I take a Take LA, I don't wanna make it far-fetched. So LA, my congregation, uh, McCarty Memorial became famous because uh, they did forced integration in LA. They they did uh, redlining busting. And so think of it um, as as this. In LA, Wilshire Boulevard was, for lack of better words, the train tracks of the city which meant that black people couldn't buy houses in certain parts of LA, LA City. People talk about Baldwin Hills. Let's be honest what Baldwin Hills was. Baldwin Hills was an oil field. Nobody wanted to live there, right? And so when black folks moved here during the Great Migration, fleeing the terror of lynching in the South, right, in the 60s, they tried to figure out where do we live? People in my congregation tell me all the time, the fact that we were forced to move to a certain area, a ghetto, if you will, um, and buy property there where the property value was automatically depressed, meant that generational wealth in our family became a fleeting dream. And the California dream became a nightmare for many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you look at the reparations project in America, you, one of the big things that was talked about is the wealth gap, right? So a black family is nine times uh, poor than the average white family in assets alone, right? And so when we talk about restitution, it's not so much a check, it's how do you help black folks who are redlined out of their homes and when they built the 10 freeway in LA uh, and removed large chunks of black homes, how do we make sure we give them down payment assistance so that they can actually live in the city, 
right? When we talk about health outcomes, right? The fact that uh, I think some of you all may have seen the movie that Oprah did on HBO around Henrietta Lacks and how they took her genes in order to cure and, and do a lot of things. So we have disparaging health outcomes. And so the question is, how do we just make sure we have good health care for everybody, right? We, we now say health care is a human right, but in LA County, black women are still four times more likely to die on a birthing table, right? And so the question is, how do we, in a real sense, uh, begin the hard work of looking at the pain. And I'll say pain is good because pain just says, I want to be healed. Yeah. Mm. Um, Adina, our friend who wasn't able to join us, um, shared with me that in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, I hope I'm saying that right, the Prophet Muhammad um, ensured that, the, that Muslims would fulfill their obligations to provide reparations um, and compensations to those who had suffered loss. And she gives a line from Surah Al-Nisa, um, chapter 4, which is not on your sheet, but it says the following. Oh, you who believe persistent... Oh, oh, you who believe persistently stand firm in justice as witnesses for God, even if it be against yourselves or parents or relatives. So, Zach, I want to ask you, um, Reverend Zach, if you, I mean, you talk to white people um, a lot about what it means to, to allow... Um, for white people to allow ourselves to transform our understanding of our history... I know that's hard. Um, can you? I mean, you've, you've spoken a little bit about your own transformation. Can you talk about how you um, how you see the work that white people need to do in order to be really true partners and allies in this uh, in this movement? Sure. Um, I, so there's this Baldwin quote here, and you should all read it. But it, he basically says, "There's no time nor usefulness for guilt." that that's not what we're after here. And, you know, James Baldwin, who's just, I think, so masterful, and I think a great teacher for white people about race and our own experience of it, um, that it's not, it's not about that. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen the movie Mudbound. Anybody seen Mudbound? Raise your hand. It's, it's really powerful and difficult. Um, so just be, you could read about it before you watch it. I, I strongly recommend it. And part of what that movie, to me, demonstrates, it's about the, uh, a cross-racial relationship between two boys who grew up together, who then go off in the service together. Uh, one is black, one is white. They're from the South. Um, and, and at the end, what happens is the, the father and the son, the white father and the white son, um, basically the white father enacts this violence upon his son to make him do violence to his friend in order to maintain the boundaries of whiteness. So I think um, uh, there's, a, there's a cost, and that's a very extreme example, but there's a cost of having friends, family, other members of white community for those of us who are white to um, being told, being sort of kept within the boundaries of what's acceptable that maintains the structures of, uh, of white supremacy and, and of racism. And I think um, the person who helped me see this really well was Angel Kyoto Williams, mm. friend of yours. And she talked about, what do you think it did? So here, here's how the sort of the image she pictured in her mind, which I'd love to share. She says, now imagine a little white girl with her mother uh, walking by the auction block in the South. Mm. If we know and we understand that from a human point of view, race isn't real, 
that biologically speaking, our mirror neurons work with everyone. In other words, we're designed to feel each other's pain, no matter what the tone or whatever, however we've been socialized is, that actually um, when Eddie hurts, I can feel Eddie's hurt. That's how we're designed. But then there's been something that's interrupted that, something that's told us that I'm not supposed to feel your pain. And, um, and what Angel invited us to imagine was, wh like, what is the message the girl receives when the mother walks by as if that pain isn't real? Mm -hmm. And the other thing I sometimes reflect on is, like, just how do we help each other as white people get in touch with our stake in this and the, the damage that it, done to, it does to us? So, for example, if you're not allowed to feel, if I'm not allowed to feel Eddie's pain at the same level, well, like biologically, I can't make myself feel less of his pain while still feeling more of my cousin's who's white. It, it doesn't really work that way. So in fact, a lot of the damage that we see and some of the pain that we see in white families, I think, I think is a result of having blocked ourselves off from emotion toward black people in order to consciously or unconsciously not feel that pain in order to not feel compelled to do something about it but, I mean, doesn't that lead to, like, your grandfather not being able to tell you I love you? I mean, what's the difference, really? So cutting yourself off from your emotional life, from your ability to, to love someone else, to feel someone else's pain, I think comes at a great cost. And I think, like, exploring that with people is important. And it gets into their own family histories, their own stories, the ways in which the dysfunction of race manifests in our families. I, I'm completely blown away by this, and I hope, I just want to... I just want to repeat it to make sure I'm understanding <laughs> right and make sure we all got this. But you're, you're saying that, that when we block off our natural, instinctive, empathic reaction toward others because they might be different from us, we're also blocking off a part of our heart, yes. which means that we also can't love fully to even those who might be closest to us. Right. And so part of the reason that there's so much violence in our society is, is because of white supremacy, because of racism, because of this, this uh, the, the deception that told us at the beginning of this country, before the beginning of this country, that, that black people were inferior to white people. And buying that deception keeps us from being the best parents that we could be, the best children we could be, the best friends and citizens that we can be. That's um, inc incredibly powerfully said. And I, I also really appreciate that what James Baldwin's framing of this guilt is a luxury that we can no longer afford. As a Jew, I find guilt very useful, but I appreciate <laughs> this reframe because, because actually guilt is a luxury. Yeah. And you're saying like, no, don't get caught up in the guilt. Think like really do the hard work to understand what is at the root of that guilt. And then to make, to make the reparation, to make the payment for the stolen beam, instead of just walking around forever feeling guilty that you know that your house was built on a stolen beam. This is actually a path to shared liberation, a path to liberation for all of us. And I think that's one of the most important things that's come out of BLM and out of this moment that we're living through. I think it's broken the myth that any person or people can be liberated without the rest of us also being liberated. There is no liberation for one if there's not liberation for all of us. And I so deeply appreciate that. That's been, I think, a transformation in our, in our collective thinking over the course of the last couple of decades. And I credit that to the movement for black lives. Um, so I also just want to ask you, and we're going to wrap in a moment, um, but I want to ask you if you'll look at, if you'll share this text from Matthew from the New Testament, um, yeah. which I think is important uh, yeah. for us also in this moment. Yeah. Uh, I, so this year, I'm just going to read it. This is from the message translation, which I really, I like, Eugene Peterson. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and are about to make an offering, 
in order, in, in other words, like you're trying to get right with God and do the things you need to do with the eternal, you suddenly, and suddenly you remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. So from, from the Christian perspective, it's like God is saying, I'm not really interested in having the conversation about forgiveness until you've done the work that you need to do with your brother, your sister, your sibling, your friend, whoever it is. And um, there's so much in the New Testament about forgiveness, um, both how to offer it as well as how to ask for it. And this one just really sticks with me. So it's kind of like we go on, for those of us who are white Christians, for example, and aren't involved in this work, you know, we go on with the, with the acts of worship, with, you know, asking God to forgive our sins for whatever we may have done this week or last week or last year. And, and uh, it kind of falls on deaf ears. And um, it reminds me of uh, in the Hebrew scriptures where, uh, I, I can't remember, is it Amos who says, I hate, I hate your songs, I hate your... The prophet Isaiah says that something very close to this, and we actually read it on Yom Kippur morning. In the, in the heart yes. of the fast, we read, I don't care about your fast. Right. Yeah. I don't care about these prayers. Like, go feed the hungry. Go yeah. take care of the poor. Go make, make justice in the world. Yeah. And I love the resonance here, and it actually, I, you know, it reminds me that something, I believe it was our friend Reverend Ed Bacon said years ago, which is all faith is, is multi-faith now. Uh -huh. The only way to be a believer is to make space for the, for the paths of our fellow, um, fellow people of faith. And I'm so moved by this because we're not alone in this work, none of us, that we're actually all on very, um, on similar trajectories here. We have different core narratives that are guiding us um, toward, toward, a, toward a kind of truth. But, um, but we're all on the same, we're all kind of on parallel pathways here. And, and Pastor Eddie, can you, I want to just ask you if you can offer for us as we're about to close. Um, this session, I called it, um, I called it the spiritual work of beloved community, a multi-faith conversation on the spiritual work of beloved community. Can you just tell us what the dream is? Like, what is the beloved community to you that, so that we can hold this vision at the forefront and remember what it is that we're fighting for. Because I know that Ralph Cook is right, and I know that, that you're both right. And the deeper we get into this work, the more the pain point becomes clear. And we have to hold in front of us what the real vision is so that we really remember what it is that we're working toward and fighting for. May, may, I, just, may, may I before, because I want you to say the, the last piece. Is that okay? May I add one yeah. thing that Eddie said to me? Um, a number of years ago when we were doing some reading, reading together on the staff, this book, Biased. I don't know if people have read it, but it's really powerful. And uh, Eddie and I were sitting next to each other, and we were chatting. And, um, and Eddie said, um, he turned to me, and he said, well, you know, our ancestors are always talking to each other. And I think um, what's so powerful about that for me is that the idea that the conversation is not happening just because we're not talking about it is total bullshit that when we sit next to each other, it's there, whether we like it or not, between our ancestors. And, and our ancestors know what we are and aren't doing. Mm. And they're talking with each other about the life we're living right now. So I just, that has always stuck with me. And before you get to say your final piece, <laughs> I wanted to get that in there. So true. Um, I think in this sacred moment, uh, as all our hearts are open, my vision for beloved community what's coming up for me right now is the prophet Jeremiah. It's to invite all of us to go back to the potter's wheel mm. and to really look in the mud and fire together a new community, a new container mm. uh, where 
my skin color is only an indication that we are not all yet free. And that when we all are truly free, it does not matter what zip code I live in, it does not matter uh, whether my father was able to get a college education or not, it does not matter if my mom uh, was able to be treated correctly when she took me to the doctor when I was a child and people looked at us sideways because my skin color. But it, what matters is that we are searching for equity. And when we search for equity, we say to one another, uh, that I am because you are, that, that the idea of I is a misnomer, that we actually are a we trying to work together to figure out in LA City, how do we heal homelessness? Because homelessness is a moral crisis and yet black people are disproportionately homeless in our society because that's a vestige of Jim Crow, that's a vestige of slavery, that's the vestige of redlining and not having the wealth to take care of one another, that when we look at mass incarceration in our society that a beloved community says, we need to figure out a different way that's not punitive in our system, but one that restores us. So instead of locking you up, I wanna ask you, how do I make you well? How do I give you mental health mm. services? How do I make sure that your worst mistake is not how we judge you for the rest of your life? That really what we are working on is going to the potter wheel together yes. and looking at one another and saying, yes, we are all clay muddy clay, clay that is fragile, clay that has messed up, but we can work together to fire a new container. And so that's what King and Baldwin and Bayard Reston and Leonard Bierman and Reverend mm -hmm. Lawson and Sharon and Zach and all of us really want us to do. We want us to really heal the broken world. And that's the vision of beloved community. Community is looking at pain and saying, I need you you need me, that we're all a part of God's body. And so we have to stand with one another, heal with one another, and actually love each other enough to say that if I have a lot and you have a little, I want you to be free enough. So I'll give whatever privilege, whatever rights, whatever status that I have in society, I will extend it to you because you were already extended that at the beginning of creation. And so that's what we're working towards. That's how we are moving, and that's my hope, that one day I can walk down the street and that no one looks or thinks twice because I'm black. They look at my soul, the content of my character, and says, are you whole, brother? Mm -hmm. How do I continue to keep you whole? Mm -hmm. oh, beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> I, and I want to say that the message of these days is it's not too late. It's not too late for this work to happen in each of our souls in Los Angeles, the city and county in California and in the country and in the world. And I just bless the two of you. I ask God to grant you health and strength of body and spirit so that you can continue to use your voices with great courage as you do and to inspire us all. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you.